Hey everyone, it's Paul here. Merry Christmas. I hope you are all doing well. This week's episode, I am actually on the other end of the interview that happens from time to time. And in this particular episode, I am being interviewed on a YouTube channel called The Meaning Code. It's hosted by Karen Wong. Karen brings on guests from a variety of fields, whether it's physics, art, economics, philosophy, theology, and more for long-form conversations. She's an excellent host, very, very intelligent, incredibly intelligent. In fact, you'll probably hear in the segment of the conversation that I'm posting today, her get into some, some things about physics and mathematics that were just, boy, they were beyond my, um, certainly beyond my domain of expertise and beyond my domain of domains of competency even. But uh, again, I'm posting just a segment of this conversation. We talked together for probably close to two hours and she has that full conversation on her channel. Again, it's called The Meaning Code. I'll post a link in the description, but I wanted to post a particular segment of the conversation uh, and, and kind of edit out the, the beginning of it in which I share a bit of my own personal story because most of you have heard that and heard me told, tell my story um, you know, several times in, in several different interviews past. So I thought I'd just chop most of that out and get into a section that I think might be most helpful for you to ruminate on this week. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. There will be a video of this also available on my YouTube channel. And while you're on my YouTube channel, it's really exciting. We just broke uh, 4,000 subscribers. So thank you if you've subscribed my YouTube channel. This week, I've also posted a new video essay in my Deep Ideas in Film series. This one is about Spider-Man No Way Home. And the question is, is this actually the most Christian superhero movie ever? And uh, well, of course, it was just uh, in many ways, you know, a typical Marvel movie, a big you know, blockbuster film. There were some pretty unique things that happened in this movie and were really core to the message of the film. Uh, this core message was peculiar to me. It was peculiar in um, really thought-provoking and encouraging ways. So you can check out that video on my YouTube channel as well. All right, well, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Karen Wong on The Meaning Code one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you had this comment on uh, Twitter about the shape of reality. And that's something I think about a lot and have been thinking a lot about a lot for many, many years. And I wanted to know what you meant when you said it, yeah. the shape of reality. Um, so a lot of my thinking in this regard is shaped by John Walton's work, um, the Old Testament scholar, mm -hmm. most probably most well known for he's he's at Wheaton University most well known for his like lost world series lost world of Genesis lost world of Adam and Eve lost world of the flood um <clears throat> Walton's work on Genesis 1 and even into Genesis 2 and 3 is about helping us think through Genesis the the two the two creation narratives because they are really two narratives in Genesis one and Genesis two and three, they're telling uh, stories about creation, but um, they're, they're focused on, on different things for, for Walton, the, the story is really about um, we need to think as the ancient person thinks obviously, and to not impose on it, these questions that often happen in, evangelical context and fundamentalist context where we're asking questions about science and things that would have been by no means in the purview of the author or the original audience. They didn't really care about that stuff. Or, but primarily what they're sorting through is like, what is the, what is the right, who's behind <laughs> the ordering of the cosmos? Because that's a big deal for ancient people, because the, unlike our day, unlike in the secular age that we live bleeding into the post-secular age, the questions weren't about whether a God exists or not. Like that's just not, but it was much more for uh, about who is the God in charge of the ordering? What is their intended ordering? What role does humanity play 
in that ordering. And that is really the story that's laid out in Genesis is to actually there's like these really subtle clues embedded in the text, like why the, um, you know, the, the sun and the moon aren't made until day four. And you're like, how do you even have days until that day three or four? I forget it's up in my head. And even that is a subtle dig against, the, you know, astrology and the, the emphases of ancient near Eastern peoples on the sun or the moon being a God themselves. And here you have the author of Genesis going, no God's the, the God that is above all doesn't even need the sun and the moon, like they're subordinate to him. So it's answering questions about the ordering of the cosmos. And of course, ultimately getting into what's on an existential level, what's most important to us as meaning hunting beings is what, what is our role in this story? And so that gets to the question of what, um, Oh, what John, what, what, what does Walton call it? Um, you know, he, he, this would be more of a, this would be more of a Tolkien term, but uh, Walton has a similar concept that we act as sub creators, right? That's, that's Tolkien mm -hmm. concept. And Walton calls it, uh, I don't know, someone in the comments of this video will probably fill remind me of the term, but essentially that we get to participate in God's unfolding ordering and right ordering of creation. We get called to be stewards and caretakers of it. And so thinking of the, um, thinking of the story in this way, and then thinking about sin, sin in this light gets us to think about what the word harmartia means in the new Testament, which is missing the mark misordering. So what happens in Genesis two and three is the story that is told about how the right ordering moves into disorder, right? It moves into disorder and dysfunction when the human caretakers of creation do not fulfill what they're called to do in the ordering of the cosmos. And what that ends up doing is it usurps God's ordering and that reordering, if it's not in alignment with God's optimal ordering is what we would call disorder, dysfunction. Um, and so that for me is like one way of understanding at least the when we talk about the Christian story and the four phase of the Christian story creation, redemption. Um, but what's the third <laughs> creation fall, I should say, creation fall, redemption, and consummation to understand creation in that light and the fall in that light is to me crucial to understanding what the redemptive portion of the four phase Christian narrative is. And that is now that creation has been disordered because of the presence of sin, because of the cosmic fall, because our order, our appetites are disordered. Like we're born into the world. And we, we know this, like, I, I think Ver, John Vervecki agrees on this, even though he's not necessarily saying like he believes in some sort of Augustinian original sin is that there is something about well, you, you were getting into, I mean, you were realizing this too, Karen, as you got deeper into like conspiracy culture and even like the, the constant political culture war is you, you under, you start seeing this, you, you experience this even in your own political journey that we are so concerned about our self-preservation mm -hmm. that our, our desire and drive to preserve ourselves. We do this often at the cost of other image bearers and it's disordered it's disordered because it, 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 it it's it's incongruent with god's intention and right ordering for reality which is to say we are all image bearers made in god's image we bear god's likeness there's something written about it into us that's deeply important like immeasurably valuable so when i place my value over you karen you know like if i do something that puts my own self-preservation to come at your cost, it's harmartia. It's missing the mark. It's disordered. And yet we have, we know we have these base appetites in us and we see it too. And like, there's good questions we need to wrestle with about theology and evolution, but we see it even in the animal kingdom. I mean, we see it among some of our nearest and I, I'm sorry, Karen, I don't know where you might sit on your, 
your own perspective about evolution, but I'm, I'm sharing my own and you can feel free to, to, um, to counter if you're well, not. I'll just point. tell you up front. I can hold both viewpoints in my yeah. hands and I can see both of them. I can see the pattern and the truth and everything that runs right through the middle of both of them. Yeah. So I think somehow <laughs> I have a very weird picture of reality, but I, ha I think somehow that, that, not that we live in one of a multitude of universes or anything like that, but there is something about reality where there are different faces of reality that are all one reality ultimately, but they're kind of out of phase with each other. Yeah, no, I hear <laughs> and you. I kind of think that evolution and, and creation are uh, two faces of the same truth, hmm. but I can see I, I can follow the trail through both of them and I can yeah. see it. So Sorry, I got going and I realized I, I, I sometimes have to be careful because I, I forget at times where people's deep feelings about creation come in, especially like even in local church contexts, my own local church. I always have to uh, I have to be respectful that not everybody's on on that same um, in the same place as I am in interpreting the science that way. But what I was trying to say is we actually we see this in our in our nearest, the nearest of kin <laughs> in the, the, uh, the animal kingdom, we see it among chimpanzees in particular, chimpanzees are brutally violent and territorial. And, um, well, I just saw this, uh, really interesting article that for the first time, and probably not the first time in history, but it seems to be the first time scientists have observed, and I forget where this is happening in Africa, but due to a scarcity of resources, we are actually seeing for the first time chimps and gorillas at war. Typically, those two have had a fairly peaceful coexistence, but there are packs of chimps, like 70 deep, like we're talking like chimp militias <laughs> invading what has typically been gorilla space, brutally murdering baby infant gorillas uh, and it's it's a weird thing, but I bring that up to say like both of those stories, whether we want to simply look at it from the story that we have known to be true even before we knew science, the biblical story, we say we've been born into this world with something disordered about our appetites that would cause us to act in the world in this way where we as human beings do the same thing. You know, we will we will pillage and we will rape and we will war so that we can preserve ourselves at the cost of another of another person and there's something about that that needs redeeming there's something about that that we need a new nature and so this is to me it's still at the heart of the christian message it isn't like do better try harder it's that christ has come fully god fully human, sinless, tempted in all things and sinned not, conquered the forces of sin and death. And now we enter into union with Christ and we begin to take on his nature. And that nature at work in us is the new, what does Paul talk about? It's the second Adam. You know, it's the first fruits of a new creation. I like to call it like the slain lamb prototype. The slain lamb is the prototype of a new creation. And the redemptive arc of that four-phased Christian story is that we are recovering our vocational call to bring right ordering to the cosmos, to the created order, that we are co-laboring with the spirit of God in God's renewing work. Um, that to me is the part that we're participating in. And then there's also this really important dimension about, okay, so how do we bring this right ordering? And there have been times throughout church history that the church has lost sight. Christians have lost sight, even saying, you know, this part's disordered, but the way we're going to stop the disorder is by using violence. We'll use threat and coercion. You know, we'll torture you till you convert, right? I mean, these things that we can look back on and go, how, how absurd, um, but they're, they're still happening right now in different ways and shapes and forms. The method by which the world comes to 
this new reality, the age to come, not this like, you know, platonic escape to a disembodied heaven, but the real message of the new Testament, which is God is setting all things right. He's making all things new that heaven and earth will become one. The way we go about doing that has to match the end. The method has to match the end. And if the end is the slain lamb is the ruler of the cosmos, we have to be people that live into that reality. And I'm not professing I'm doing that perfectly, by the way. Well, so so we're back to this word reality. And um, when I when I heard you say the shape of reality, so you've laid out you've laid out a very comprehensive um, picture of the you you laid out a very comprehensive picture of the story of the narrative of it, yeah. of the shape of yeah. reality let's say <clears throat> but in my mind when i think of the shape of reality i have another picture and and the two pictures fit together i think they're very cognizant but um the picture that i have of the shape of reality is that christ himself is reality okay and that um you know how when jordan peterson was teaching his biblical series, he talks about Christ as being the ideal and the ideal is always a judge. Yes. And that's, that's true on every level, everywhere you look, <clears throat> the ideal is always the judge because the ideal tells us where we're missing, where we're yes. missing the mark. Right. So, and that is, Oh, I'm so glad you put it like that, Karen, sorry to interrupt, but that is actually what I was trying to communicate to Verveke. I don't know if you got to that point in the conversation where we're talking about who's the conductor of the symphony of sages was that there's like an implied ideal. And, and, and even if we don't name it, there is something that we brush up against that we go, well, Socrates is good. Plotinus is good. The Buddha is good. What is the ideal? And so I'm glad you put it that way. That's what I should have said. <laughs> well, so, but let me, let me just keep going a little bit. Yeah. So, you know how um, Peterson and Verveke are always talking about, well, we're all always talking about the map and the reality. <clears throat> and you can't mistake the map for the reality, mm -hmm. right? This goes all the way back to when my dad became a Christian just a couple of months before he died. He said he had spent his whole life mistaking the message for the messenger. And he'd been looking at people who were talking about the gospel, but he'd never really heard the gospel because he was looking at the people. And so we, we're always making this mistake where we see, we, we become very familiar with the map. We know all the propositions. We know, you know, we know all the truths and we know all that stuff, but, but there is a reality that is not the map. Right. And, and this is what frustrates me so many times when I hear people talking, they're talking about a reality that they would like to see. They have a utopian vision of the way they think things should be, but there is a way that things are. We can't see it very well, but we recognize it when we bump up against it. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, he had to hit me over the head with a two by four before I could see that. Meaning I had to go through some hard times. Yes. The rough knocks of life. Right. Yes. <clears throat> but there is a reality somewhere. And when we when we become united with reality or aligned with reality, we can sense it because. Well, part of it is like when you were talking about during worship, when you can when you can sense God, you can feel that you've lined up with something that's not here, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, one of the ways that Jordan Peterson put it in a talk that he did with Roger Scruton was that we meet the transcendent when we err. When we come to the limits of our knowledge, that's when we meet the transcendent. Well, I think what he was saying is that every moment of our lives, there is this field of infinite potential out in front of us, right? And he's always talking about how the next moment you have to make some choice about how to make your way through that field of infinite potential. And that the best way to do that is to fix your eyes on the highest good of which you can conceive. And that when you do that, 
into your field of vision will come into your salience field will come the things that are important for you to get to where you need to go in order to fulfill that vision. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame so that he could sit down at the right hand of God, the father. So the shape of reality is that reality is an ideal. It's also a judge, Mm. right? Yeah. And, uh, and it's also the, the cross and the lamb is the mercy seat. So it's the, it's the throne the king on the throne is also the one who gives his life for the community, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's the shape of reality. So when we line up with that shape, then we're not missing the mark anymore. When we don't line up with that shape, there are ultimate consequences. Yeah. One of the things Peterson says that I really like is you can't twist the fabric of reality and not have it snap back at you at some point. But you people come up with utopian ideals all the time, but the only way they can achieve that utopian ideal is either to live in denial or to try to implement the utopian ideal. And then they go out and they find a way to coerce other people to implement that ideal for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's just there's only two ways. Either you're living in reality or you're not. Yeah. So when people say, well, you know, that's not the God I think of, or, or, you know, maybe there's a way to have a religion that's not a religion. Well, but there is a reality you have to face, you have to face reality. What is that shape of reality? And to me, it can only be that one shape, that it's the ideal and the judge and the cross. Yeah, I think the tricky part, though, is like, we are always, I, tell me what you think about this, Karen, I think, we never have a mapless engagement with it though. And this is part of our finitude, the properties mm-hmm. of finitude. This is prop- This is the properties in this age of while we are united to Christ, living still in the presence of cosmic sin of, um, again, I like to think of it as like, you know, the declaration of independence didn't end the revolutionary war. <laughs> you, know, you know, so like we are, we are living yeah, the in emancipation that sp- proclamation didn't end. Exactly. So we li- we're living in that space between the emancipation proclamation and the final ending of slavery mm-hmm. as a realization. Um, and so we live in that same space right now between the age of redemption initiated in God's redemptive activity in human history, culminating in the cross and the consummation of that picture. So as we live in that space, uh, we see in part and we prophesy in part when that Mm -hmm. which is perfect has come, that which in part will be done away. We always have a map. And so I think one of the things is that one of the positives about the postmodern thought and some of the postmodern contributions, the contributions of postmodern philosophy and thought has been the critique of colonialism. It has been the critique of power and the way that those in power think their map is the one map that explains it all. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we have to even confess, if we are committed to the Christian story, we're committed to Christ as king, is the affirmation of the activity of sin and our own propensity to hold on to power like those people were trying to do when they were, you know, railroading you in politics, Karen, is like, we have to see that and be open to seeing that in our own map. Yeah. And one of the ways that we do that is by engaging with voices and perspectives that are different from our own. And we do so in charity, in charity, confessing, like, I have a map. Now, as long as you are in agreement, like you have a map too we can get somewhere. Right. And I think that's the difference between like ideologues, you know, having their, you know, fake debates, throwing polemics at each other, which is really just kind of like rallying the tribe and genuine, what John calls dialogos is when we lay on the table and I say like, Karen, I confess to you, everything that I'm sharing with you 
is what I perceive right now to be the map of reality. And I'm, this is the map I'm following, but I, I know I'm going to look back on some things a few years from now, as I travel down that map and go, man, I took a left turn, a wrong turn at Albuquerque, you know? Well, I think maybe we're using map a little bit differently. So let, let's just line yeah, that let's... up. And Because when you say map, what comes into my mind is um, maybe lens or, I, I used to think, I used to call this experiential DNA. Mm -hmm. I think that John calls it relevance realization. Mm -hmm. Although I don't think his relevance realization is quite as comprehensive as what I mean when I say experiential DNA. What about the connection between map and like salience landscape? Or is that? It would be more similar to yeah. salience landscape. But but my my salience landscape or my experiential DNA is composed of every experience I've ever had, book I've read, song I've sung. In fact, the songs that I sing are already infused with layers and layers and layers of meaning coming out of all these ex other experiences that I've had and the messages that I've heard and the word that I've read from the Bible and books that I, you know, all of that stuff is inside me. So everything I hear goes through that filter and gets changed. And everything I say comes out of that filter. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And so that's true of everybody. And, and I started thinking about this long before I ever heard of postmodernism. So when I started hearing that stuff, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously that's, that's the way it is, right? So none of us can see exactly the way someone else can see, which is why we have to work so hard to try to get inside each other's heads and be charitable and be gracious. And when I said the people drive me crazy when they say that, what I mean is, I don't understand why there's not at least a common recognition that there is something called reality. Yes. I if you don't have that, then there's nothing yeah. to aim for. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and then let me go on one step further. You know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. So, so he is the truth. So truth is also there. So reality and truth and ideal and judge, they all occupy the same space. And there's a physicist by the name of Nima Arkani Hamed, who is a particle physicist. He's also a little bit more courageous than a lot of other physicists because he will talk about um, that there being an ultimate truth in science that they're all trying to find. And he finds it kind of puzzling that such a thing could be because he's an atheist. But he gave this wonderful talk called The Fundamental Morality of Physics. And what he said in this talk was that, oh, you got to go, don't you? I'm Your good. I'm oh, good. Yep. Okay, sorry. Well, let's keep going. <laughs> um, and I'll put a link to this talk because it's really quite amazing. But he said, you know, they explore, they experiment, they do they they do the theoretical stuff the particle physics the experiments that they do and um let's look at the earlier scientists he uses newton as an example newton came to this place where he understood a certain picture of gravity and that became the picture that informed the the whole world for what 300 years i don't know why alexa is talking to me right now <laughs> She um, wants in on the conversation. Yeah, I guess so. So anyway, um, so Newton had this picture of gravity, and that picture of gravity is a perfect crystalline picture. It's absolutely true for what it's true for, okay? And that it's a, like a mountain, and you're at the peak of that mountain when you understand Newton's theory of gravity. And that theory allowed us to get to the moon, it allowed us to send the Hubble microscope, Hubble telescope out, you know, billions of miles and all that kind of stuff. So, but along comes Einstein with his theory. And that's now a new picture of gravity. True. It's a true picture of gravity because they've done a lot of testing and they've determined that this is real. It's a higher mountain because from that mountain peak, you can see this other mountain peak, which is still crystalline, pure, and true. It's still there, hasn't changed. It's still true for all the things that it's true for. But now there's this higher peak. 
And it is also true. Mm. And he said, that's what science is, is this always moving after the next higher peak, the next higher peak. But that means that there's something higher. Mm -hmm. And he's very puzzled by that. But to me, that's this picture of what truth actually is. Truth isn't just one little package of propositions, although those propositions may be true and very useful for where they are at. But there will always be something higher. There will always be something higher. And that seems kind of obvious to us because the scripture says that God is far above anything that we could ever ask or think or imagine, right? right? So there is always something higher. But that doesn't negate that science can observe and experiment and find out the truth of things based on what actually fits up against this reality that exists there. Yeah, but it's still comparing maps in a sense, you know, like part of the scientific process is maybe again, we're talking about maps and lenses interchangeably. But the reason why the scientific process is so effective is because of community verification. You know, so we share, like, is this, can we reproduce this experiment in a way that others can observe it and also bear witness to it as well? And yeah, that was certainly sense. the thing with Einstein. I mean, what he said right. didn't appear to be true for a long time until they had done a lot of work around it. Right. And I, I hate quantum mechanics. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't like it. I don't like that it upsets the Newtonian picture of the world. I don't know what to make of it. I'm not smart enough to fully comprehend it. Oh, sometime we got to have a conversation about it because I love it. I no, I hate it. No, no, I, I hate it in the sense that I can't grasp it in the way that I'd like to be able to grasp it and make a Mm -hmm. easily coherent picture of, of reality from it. But whether or not I like it or not, there has been enough community verification in this process to go, well, I think that's a pretty good map of reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is actually at the heart and of genuine religious experience too. You know, this, you have the Protestant and Catholic debates about what comes first. Is it Is it the authority of the community? Is it the authority of scripture? And it's like, it's really both. Like the community was shaped around the scriptures and the scriptures were shaped around the community. That is like, we can't go without that. So what I'm suggesting is like, when what we're doing now together, Karen, and what I think I'm so encouraged to see more of happening on these sorts of spaces among some of the shared people that we know is is people going just like you're talking about i'm standing on this specific convictional location with my map and maybe my lens and i'm looking out on the horizon and here's what i'm seeing what are you seeing as well Mm -hmm. where it becomes really really hard to navigate and to have any sort of dialogue at all and you're right about this is if is if you can't come to agreement on there being a transcendent ideal if, if you don't think that even exists, those conversations are really difficult. It's easy to talk with John Verveke because John Verveke, even though we are disagreeing on what God is like in some sense, what ultimate reality is like, Verveke th- believes that there is some sort, he's not a reductive physicalist. Right. Yep. Right. Or you can have some really extreme postmodern thought um, where it's like, you know, like truth can be um, not singular, right? You know, Mm -hmm. and that's difficult to have dialogue with people about. But if you get together Christians of diverse denominational backgrounds, you get together even with Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Neoplatonists. And I think that's probably at the core of what like could make for a functioning pluralistic society in the West. And I think that was at the, the vision of a pluralistic United States worked when people held to the, this still this core commitment that no matter what my map is, I do affirm that there is some transcendent ideal or reality that goes beyond my map. And yet mm-hmm. together we can share 
in at least that affirmation, when that thing devolves, it's really hard to have not just conversation. Obviously, conversation would be one part of community, but it's hard to have community. It's hard to have civilization, mm-hmm. right? Because if we don't agree on that, we can't even work through and compare our maps together. One of the encouraging things that's happening, if you have just a minute, I'd like to show you a picture. Yeah. Um, one of the encouraging things that's happening across the science landscape is that there are increasingly more of these people. Let me see, where is it? There. Can you see that? Yep, I can. Increasingly more of these scientists that are starting to say, something's going on here. (laughs) And and, uh, Stephen Wolfram is one of them. Stephen Wolfram is a physicist and a mathematician, very, very well known. And he, he went off into math for a couple of decades and developed Mathematica and Wolfram language and a whole bunch of stuff like that. And then he came back to physics two years ago because he wanted to explore an idea about what the universe is. And this is a visual summary of what- Yeah, help me understand what this means. (laughs) I I will, I will. So one of the things that he, conclusions that he's come to is that space is discrete. It's made up of atoms of space. And this would be the very beginning of the universe. This is what he calls the initial condition. I think that's an interesting picture. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Okay. Now, up here in the upper left-hand corner, he has this idea that one simple rule is all that's needed to create all of this complexity. I didn't know if you've ever done any any watching stuff like on cellular automata. No. A cellular automata is the idea that if if you have a piece of graph paper and you have a, a black square at the top, you can, you can set up a couple of, you can set up any sort of thing that you want with these little black squares, but there you can come up with a different rules so that that black square will move different places on the graph paper, given the relationships that it's in. Like if it's next to a black square, it would be a different consequence. Or if it's next to a white square, it would be a different consequence. And so in a two-dimensional world, a cellular automata can create immense complexity. In fact, it can become what's called computationally irreducible. So um, you could start out with this simple rule and end up with this computationally irreducible thing that just has to play itself out before you can find out what happens. You can't predict, no prophesying. <laughs> You can't predict what's going to happen. Well, so he wanted to look at it in a three-dimensional world. So he came up with this idea of a simple rule that if, if this is the original picture here, you have this one, now it's branched off into two. And the rule is wherever this shape happens, it's going to turn into this shape. So the one is going to become three. Wherever this happens, it's going to turn into this. Out of that, this is the first few updating events that take place, very simple like this, but eventually it starts to look something like this thing down here. And over time, it gets increasingly more complex and things start showing up in there, like reality starts showing up in there. So... So this is the basic sequence of of building what he calls the hypergraph. He said space and matter are emergent features of this hypergraph. Elementary particles are localized persistent structures in the hypergraph. But then this is his picture of space and time right here. Hmm. So this is what happens with one rule. He says the universe is playing all possible, all possible rules. Okay. So this is all possible rules playing out. Now, if I take a slice across this way at any given point in time, I can look at everything that's happening at that point in time in that space. 
Okay. You can get a picture. Yeah. It's like you could slice through the universe and take a digital image of it. And okay. But the interesting thing is if I, and I shouldn't have said it at a point in time, let's just say you take a slice of space, you can tell what's happening in that slice of space. But if you take a slice of time down this way, you will discover, according to his model, that depending on where you're, depending on which direction you're looking in the middle of this thing, you're going to see different time sequences. You're not going to see things in the same time sequence that you see if you turn a little bit and see it somewhere else. So, of course, it's not possible to have a completely impartial observer in this universe because we, as humans, we occupy a certain space within this thing. And whatever it is that we occupy, that's what we can see. So there are a lot of things going on here that we will never understand. We can never see. We can't know anything about. But in our own little corner, we have this thing that he calls computational reducibility, where we can find things like mathematical laws and physical laws, and we can recognize objects, and we can live our lives in this little corner of the universe. But, And I'm not saying at all that I think this is the way the universe is constructed. Yeah. But what's fascinating to me is how many parallels there are just in this picture with things that we think about on a spiritual plane. And the other fascinating thing is he has started reading theology and he's trying to find some answers because he's never known anything about theology. He came from a completely reductionist science background, but he's beginning to see things here that are making him question the way he's always seen reality before. So mm. I get really fascinated about this kind of stuff. In what ways has he confessed um, a fascination with theology or maybe the insufficiency of the reductive picture? Is it because is he saying this because he's has questions about agency? Like that there is again to well, so he he has one of the conclusions he's come to. Well, he he says he's come to the conclusion that the universe is computational. Mm. Now, computational, it does not mean like a computer, right? Computational means the universe is based on choice. Zero and one, everything is a choice. Yes or no, up or down, left or right, everything is a choice. Hmm. Right? So I had this, I had this thought, um, And I was just playing with this idea, um, this thought experience experiment based on Wolfram's theory of everything. One of the guys that I talked to quite a bit is a guy by the name of Jeremy Firth, and he has this image. Did you of, just open something up, Karen? Because I can't see it on your screen. Oh, okay. I don't know why it's not showing. On yeah. my screen, I'm seeing like a blacked out. I don't know why it doesn't show. Well, I'll just I'll just read it. Um, okay. I'll clear off. Let me clear off some of this stuff so that it's not in the way. So you're seeing a blacked out section of this image here? Yeah. Okay. I apologize for That's that. I'll okay. move it over somewhere where it's not important, and then I'll just read from it. <clears throat> so Jeremy Firth has this idea that um, that the the if, one way of looking at the cross is that it's these two elements of structure and flexibility. It's like the golden rule. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, the structure and flexibility. You can probably map it onto order and chaos. <laughs> yeah. since, it, since in the world, things are messy, complicated, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> but... Um, what I said is, what if the one simple rule is the golden rule? And Jeremy's idea that love God is the structure part, the vertical pole, and love thy neighbor is the flexibility part, the horizontal pole. This keeps love from becoming too tightly structured and rule-driven 
And in the outworking of the neighbor loving part, we learn flexibility, which gives us a possibility of living in freedom and without coercion. Mm -hmm. So if love is the one simple rule, what grows out of that? In a cellular automata, the rule is always relational. What is happening before and on either side of it determines what happens next. Love is always relational and love is act, not thought. And love is always a choice. So what is love just follows, what if love just follows this one very simple rule that no matter what the next move is, that move will always be motivated by love. Always choosing love, always based on an intention of good for the other. And out of that would grow this ultimate beautiful complexity. Hmm. So there are two sides to this. God's love for us enables us to love him and to love our neighbors. And God's love constructs the world. And somehow the world has spaces in it that we can grow into and fit into as we begin to find a way beyond the map to the territory itself. Hmm. So that's the idea. That's profound, that I, Karen. I, hmm? That's profound. Well, I... I I'm still fleshing it out, but um, I Hmm. think about it a lot because... So the one question that instantly comes to mind, right, is um, when it comes down to it, I'm probably like, I don't know, this is a loaded term, but when it comes down to it, I, I have existentialist inclinations. So I'm always trying to boil it down to the existential living what does this mean in the shape and the activity of my life? So when I think about what you're saying is this love is the transcendent anchor point. And it is also the teleological end that God has because it's inseparable from who he is. Is that a fair summarization, right? So well, I didn't get to the teleological point yet in what yeah. I was talking about, but but the idea of love being relational and that love comes from God, otherwise we wouldn't have the capacity to love mm-hmm. and that it's in community that we experience yes. and express love and learn what loving costs. And so when we can see what it costs to love, we can better understand the cost that God goes through in order to love us and the cost that he has gone through with his precious blood to redeem us yeah and, and all of that so i think this gets to the question the first thing comes to mind gets to the question maybe bart had about natural theology and discerning theology. i haven't ever read any theology no. so you're gonna have to fill me in yeah <laughs> yeah so bart bart's argument was pretty against the discipline of natural theology so the discipline of looking at nature and looking for a way to understand god's character and nature in the natural ordering of the world right now because part of his argument was like we couldn't actually name what is true good beautiful in nature outside of the revelation of jesus Mm -hmm. and so when we talk about you know people talk about God as love, there has to, love can, love has to have a shape. It actually has to have a map to it. Yes. Right. So now we're, we're faced with this difficult decision of where do we get our map on what love looks like? Do we have to make an a priori decision or choice (laughs) to say, well, the shape of love is confined and restricted within the boundaries of the, the of the Christ, of Christ's demonstr of of the of what we've seen in the pattern of Jesus's life, his ministry, life, death, the incarnation, his ministry, his death and resurrection. Um, because if if it if it isn't, if we can't name that and name what the shape is, what differentiates the or i should say when we compare maps let's say we actually get to comparing a map with another person and we're saying love is our aim this is the thing that guides us what happens if there's different 
pictures of what love actually looks like. And certainly we wrestle, we're wrestling with this in the church. There's intramural debates about human sexuality and marriage and the shape of love. And is it loving to act this way in the world? And that I don't have an answer. I'm just, as I'm thinking through this out loud, I'm going, okay, this is really good. But the thing I guess I keep coming back to, even in my conversations with John is, I think part of our map, when we even invoke a word like love, we have to confess, like we are, we're swimming culturally in the Christian story, whatever remnants of it remain. And this is like Tom Holland's dominion book, right? Like we are Mm -hmm. so unaware of how much our map of what loving looks like is informed. And it wasn't always universally true that we should think of what we just got done singing last week in church, that the slave is our brother and in his name, all oppression shall cease. That has not always been what the shape of love looked like in every cultural map. So I don't come with any solution other than to say like the Kierkegaardian side of me goes, well, the only way we can even name that is by faith and by deciding as Kierkegaard argues, you only know, Peter only knows coming out of the boat that Jesus is the Christ by coming out of the boat, because what it looked mm-hmm. like to them was Christ on the surface of the water looked like a ghost. You, well, you that, yeah, that's, that's coming back to that thing of you, 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 you meet, <clears throat> you meet the transcendent when you come to the limits of your knowledge. Yes, yes. When, when you have to step out of the boat, when you have to have the experience, right? Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right about the problem with love. I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot on my channel is how do you navigate something like the truth that you find in postmodernism without falling over into the nihilism that postmodernism inevitably produces? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> this is very critical to me because when I was a new believer, um, because I was a new believer, my antenna were out. So I ran into new age stuff and I researched it a lot so that I could understand it because I could see where the problems lay there. Situational ethics was a big thing back then. I don't know if you remember situational ethics. Mm -hmm. That's all about how love is everything, but love can, uh, based on, I mean, Peter Singer would be a situational ethicist, you know, it's the loving thing to kill the baby that's already been born because, you know, they're not going to have a good life. And, exactly. Right. I, I ran it when I was in the legislature. One of the other women in the legislature was a female pastor. Mm-hmm. And she and I were tasked with visiting the, the home for the profoundly disabled children. And when she and I came out of that experience, because we were funding for this home, she said it would have been better if they'd never been born. In fact, it would be better if they weren't alive now. I said, and there's no doubt in my mind, she genuinely meant that. And she probably genuinely felt like that was the loving thing to do. And now we're coming into a conflict of competing visions of what love looks like. So I'm bringing this up. And after that comes values clarification. Yes. And that's all about how do you choose who gets to be in the lifeboat based on their qualifications, you know? And yeah, I mean, Believe me, I get all this stuff, but when I drew that picture, I was thinking more of, well, I don't mean it. I'm sorry, Karen, I want to clarify. I didn't mean it as a critique of your Oh, no, no, no. I know. This is good, though. It's all good. It's good because it, we have, even if I'm thinking this stuff, the people who are listening to us also need to know what the undercurrent is, right? So, um, a Turing machine has just one little choosing head that goes back and forth. I don't know if you know how they work, but his theory of everything is like all Turing, all possible Turing machines operating all possible rules. But what if just one of those rules is the correct rule and all the other rules are the wrong rules, you know? Or what if all of the rules are possible rules, but they're all driven by love? What I'm thinking of when I talked about the one rule is not that I know what love is, but I can know that the one who is not only created the world, but is always knitting it together, always holding it in place. His rule is love. That's what I'm thinking. 
Now he knows what love is because he's the author of love, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're right. We all need, I think one of the things we all need to be working on is trying to help each other see what real love is. And that can only come out of our actions, right? I mean, yeah. it can't come out of yeah. our words. I'm not, I don't think that um, we'll get to the point where we will have, like, at least in my lifetime, I mean, in the age to come, but we won't have univocal um, agreement on what the all of the ethical implications are of following Christ and even in our intramural debates, like what the shape of love practically looks like. It's really, it's really difficult. Like there are difficult ethical quagmires among people that really feel like this is what Christ like love looks like. We certainly get it in how we care for the poor, right? There's, you know, this Mm -hmm. in the domain of politics that you can have Christians that are on the left and on the right, and they are both genuinely concerned about the poor and they have different methodologies that they think yeah. are the most. What I think um, is um, what I think the, this is again, my Kierkegaardian existentialism showing. Okay. I am crazy enough to believe that those who genuinely seek him will find him. Mm-hmm. And that if someone at the beckoning call of the spirit is being drawn into the love of God and they lay their lives down on that altar. I think they will ex- experientially come to know the shape of love, even though there will still be a difficult outworking of all of love's implications. This is still like, this is the charismatic in me. It's the Pentecostal in me. That's like, this isn't about, did you sign off on a doctrine contract, right? It's not the propositions about God. It is the experiential participatory union with God that is salvific. So I do believe this, but I believe it in faith. (laughs) And I think when it comes down to it, all I have is to invite people to step out of the boat. Like, this is the place where we find it. And so stepping out of the boat is a threat to myself. It's a threat to my survival. It is, um, it is, it's, it's where, um, it's where that fight or flight kicks in. And if I'm going to act and throw myself at the mercy seat, I'm going to throw myself into love. I will, I, I, I am, this is to me, I, I, the way we invite people into the participatory knowing of God is ultimately about that. We can build this dock of, of into the ocean of God's love. We can build this dock with propositions and the things that were really important to my dad going through and going like it was Jesus, a historical person. And we can go to the end of our rational limits and we get to the end of the dock. And what we have at the end of the dock is an invitation to jump in. Mm-hmm. And you only know by jumping in. That's so for Kierkegaard, Christ isn't just a teacher. He's calling disciples. He's not, he's not calling students in the classroom sense. He's calling people to follow. And that's mm-hmm. the only way you get to know Christ is in the following of him. And mm-hmm. I, I'm crazy enough to believe that. And to believe that that's probably the only way we can really get to know that love. Um, and we still, I'm a realist. We still have the difficult outworking of that to do in our life, but I can invite people to that. And that's, I think that's the, the best I can do because salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, I'm not a Calvinist, but <laughs> that part of it <laughs> That part of it rings rings true that it's 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 we plant seeds and we we water at times, but it's God that gives the harvest. This is all in the scriptures. And so mm-hmm. when I pose that question, I'm not bringing it to you, Karen, about, well, how do we know what the shape of love looks like to go? Well, well, here's the here's the 12 parameters. You know, if it meets this, this and this, like there is some propositions about this, but I think it ultimately would come down to like taste and see that the Lord is good. And um, then we have to work through it afterwards, mm-hmm. but 
to me, that's well, I, the to me that's the I, Christian invitation into the, the way. Of yeah, you. I mean, I, absolutely, and and the way that you drew the picture is so beautiful and powerful, and it it draws the picture much more fully than I can. But that's what I was trying to say when I was saying that there is a shape to reality, and yes. that it's when we when we press up against it, or when when we have experiences that tell us this is the this is right, this is not right. This is fitted. We're fitted here. We're not fitted here. And that fittedness comes out only from experience. And I think it's the same thing with love. There is a shape to love. And we can see through experience what actually shapes, what actually fits to love and what doesn't. And you can actually even, you know, one of Jordan Peterson's big things is you can see that the the so-called love of communism doesn't fit in real life. Hmm. It's been tried over and over and over again, and yet it ends in disaster and death everywhere. So you can have an idea of what love is, and then you can see it acted out on the world stage. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. In that sense, I'm a Jordan Peterson pragmatist. I think that's really true, hmm. that, that there is a shape to love, it isn't just an airy fairy thing that we imagine lots of different definitions to or propositions about. But if you if you offer love in a way that is not actual love in in reality, it snaps back and does terrible things. This is the devouring mother. This mm. is the the mm. overly compassionate person that takes away another person's agency. And I mean, all of those things come into it. Mm. So it, it, it can be an experiential and experimental thing to discover mm. what love is. Mm. And you don't find that until you jump out of the boat. It's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's true. And you may even experience, as Peter did, short term <laughs> pain of what that mm -hmm. looks like. And so this is also the, the, the tricky part about the Christian message. You certainly have immediate benefits to calling and following Christ, but because the narrative also presupposes that all of the structures of human civilization, human community and creation, the creational structures have not been right ordered, you're going to brush up against resistance as well. And that's sifting through what is you've, you're experiencing suffering because this thing isn't working and experience suffering because it is working. <laughs> That's that's quite an act of discerning the spirits. I don't think I have it all sorted <clears throat> out, but we know this is to be true from exercise and diet. And this is this is the thing this the wisdom literature wrestles with. How much of my now, Peterson talks about this, how much of my now do I sacrifice for the future? So how much pain, how much discomfort do I endure in the now? How much do I like and when I'm arguing with my wife and I don't want to give any ground? at all. But I do, despite the discomfort of it, despite the slight ego death, because in the end, what I ultimately want is harmonious relationship with my wife and in my household. How much do I give in the short term, experience the short term pain for a better long term outcome? This is all I mean, this is all in the, the Christian, the Christian dialogue and confessing that it's messy and difficult. Um, is not the same thing as saying, uh, you know, well, it's all relative, you know. Mm -hmm. So well, sure, because that, it though. then it goes five or six layers deeper than that because you you decide not to you decide to give way give ground in your in your conversation with your spouse, and um, but you can still walk away feeling like, well, yes, I gave ground for peace, but I'm right. <laughs> You know? <laughs> and then you still have to yeah. deal with all those voices inside yourself. Well, were mm -hmm. you right? And to what oh, extent yeah. were you right? And where were you wrong? And, and start working that out. And then or when you didn't to grow push, from that experience. Yeah. Or you know? when you didn't push back because you just yes. wanted the absence of conflict instead of working yep. towards what would be the good. And That's I'm so my glad. biggest guilty pleasure right there is just letting it happen, you know, but then you bent and then you never get to where the, the real relationship is because the real Definitely. relationship is somewhere inside that thing. Definitely.
Well, I hope you found today's conversation, or at least the segment of the conversation, helpful. Again, you can feel free to check out the meaning code on YouTube for the full video of our extended, almost two-hour conversation together. Today's podcast is made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon. I can't do it without you all. I really enjoy that I don't have to sell advertisements or plug ads into this podcast to kind of help meet some of the needs and and ensure that I can continue to set apart some time to really work on this and to give this my attention. So thank you all for your support. There's, of course, additional bonus perks for those of you that are supporting or are considering supporting. We have discussion forums. There'll be a discussion forum for this episode, bonus Q&A episodes, monthly Zoom meetings, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that you can check out on my Patreon page. There'll be a link provided in the description below. And finally, I do want to give an extra special thanks to those who are kind of going above and beyond the call of duty in our Theology 201 group and higher. It's people like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, and Taylor S. Without you, I can't keep this thing going. So thank you so much. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.